Great Expectations is part of the Earth 2 network of podcasts. Strap yourselves in. It's time to take an adventure to the Silver Age of Comics. What do you like about these Neil Adams issues? What do you like about the Neil Adams issues? That Iceman is in shorts because I'm so, like, in an actual costume. Because reading that, I reread Battle of the Atom and I finished it this morning before I uh, went out and shoveled and rode my bike. I want to punch everyone in the face who puts Bobby Drake in cargo shorts. That is not a superhero costume. I hate that. I hate that. Who do you think did that first? I can't back that far. But I, but like, it's one of those things really. To one of the, when, um, when Bendis, because my problem with Bendis is like, I enjoy the fact that he's giving each of the new original five interesting personalities and kind of trying to flesh out what was started in this. I read today because you know how in all new X Men twenty three when when Bobby's talking about Rocket Raccoon and he's like it makes me feel like a Disney princess because yeah. I'm talking to a rocket or a raccoon. There is a whole group of people now on the internet that's like, so Bobby's gay, and I'm just like I don't. Why? What is happening? And it's I feel like Bendis tends to write Bobby Drake as Ultimate Bobby Drake. From the, when he did when he came over into Ultimate Spider Man yeah. and that starts to like I will admit that I'm not as good as in the Ultimate World as I should. I read like the Ultimate Fantastic Four the whole run and some of the Ultimate Avenger stuff. I'm but terrible at it too. I did so. not really read anything else. But Sean, who's who's that strange voice talking to you? That is Gracious Greg Turner. Gracious. <laughs> I've been called gregarious before, yeah. but never gracious. Well, you've earned the title gracious because this is your third visit to our studios. <laughs> uh, our third attempt at recording this awesome, awesome episode. Third um, time is the charm, I understand. <laughs> I, the, the, after the second time that he called me, and he was just like, you have to call Greg and tell him that it didn't work. <laughs> he was like, I don't want to face him. I can't believe Jerry was checking to let me know. He made Sean it, deliver the bad news. It was a bad feeling. In, uh, the, in the stomach when I uh, the I mean we have three hours of audio that exists but it's unlistenable it's pretty garbled. Well, maybe that'll uh, be the outtake. I, I, it was one of those things too where it was like I expected that Jerry was calling me to give me like the hey that was a fun episode. It was like <laughs> immediately like oh no, John <laughs> it's the end of the world. <clears throat> oh well, I'm glad to be back again. <laughs> and since none of you heard those first two appearances. Uh, We'll tell you a little bit about Greg. Greg is a really cool guy that's a regular at the shop that we go to all the time. Sean, more than me, he lives there, unfortunately for them. And that is Back to the Past Comics in Redford, Michigan. Uh, and Greg, uh, you are an expert on all things comics, especially from the Silver and Bronze Age. 
Well, that's kind of my uh, nine-year-old uh, kid, you know, when discovered my comics, you know, so that that is dates me, I know, but that does <laughs> definitely put me silver, bronze age. Those are the comics that I love the most. Uh, I think you guys asked me at one point in time which X-Men comic I probably read first, and it's hard to pin down really when it was. I uh, first discovered comics, uh, for lack of a better description, uh, at the barbershop. My dad would take me up to get a haircut, and uh, at the barbershop they had a stack of comics there for the kids. You know, the men had their men's magazines, you know, Field yeah, and Stream did. and Playboy oh. or oh, whatever, right. and... Uh, the kids, we had comics, but I had never seen comics before that. And I started reading, and they were Marvel comics, so they were great comics, and that just sucked me in. So then it was like begging Mom and Dad to take me up to the local drugstore to see if I could buy comics. But they didn't really let me do that until vacation time. And then usually for a week or two before that, my mom would take me up to the local drugstore, and I'd get to pick out five or six comics. And then I, you know, so I had like 10 or 12 or 15 comics to take with me to Kentucky, uh, where my parents were from, mm-hmm. and on our summer vacation or whatever. So I was happy as a clam in the back seat reading comics. And then I actually had a cousin that was a year or two older me, than me. She uh, read my comics, and we'd talk comics or whatever. So that was pretty cool. Awesome. Neat, neat beginning to have somebody like that. Were your parents comic readers? Do you know? My comics, uh, my parents, my comics. My parents did not care much for comics. Okay. Um, though... <clears throat> I just talking to Denny at the shop about this. My mom actually tore up one comic. I had a uh, Vampirella number five oh. with a sexy uh, Jeff Jones cover that she said, "What the hell is that?" And looked through it and said, "You can't have this." Ripped it up in front of me. So it's the only time she ever destroyed uh, anything that I, uh, that I I owned in the comic world. Well, rightly so. Yeah. Filth. <laughs> you probably deserved it. So. <laughs> I, was, I think I was maybe 12 at the time or something. But anyway, it doesn't matter. So, so that's that's kind of where I was at. Uh, again, I couldn't determine which early X-Men I've certainly read. Uh, now own almost a complete run. I will admit that 1 through 10, I've only got like 2 or 3 of those. And mm-hmm. I've got them in Master, Marvel Masterworks, so I never wanted to spend the money. Uh, but definitely was reading in the 20s and 30s, probably as a regular reader. But I have to admit that uh, I'm an Avenger guy through and through. I love the, the Avengers. The X-Men were always second rate. Uh, but it had, a lot of that had to do with the art. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> I know, exactly. Toss me out, guys. <laughs> but that had a lot to do with art. The That's Avengers right. had some great artists working on their books. And uh, until, you know, whatever, issue 49 or whatever... Uh, you know, Werner Roth was drawing the uh, the X Men. I mean, he was not yeah. exactly a star artist, workmanlike. Yes, right. he, you know, he delivered the story as written. I give him credit for that, mm-hmm. but it really didn't capture my imagination. Yeah, it wasn't until those early Steranko issues that just leaped off the page at me and made me want to read the X Men. And then, you know, after a couple of other fill in issues, Barry Windsor Smith, I think, did his very first uh, comic book uh, artwork in an adventure. Some people hate that issue. I kind of think it's it's neat that he did it on a park bench in New York City yeah. over on a, on a visa. Uh, and then all of a sudden, uh, Lord Almighty, issue 56, <laughs> you pick that up. It's got a great cover, and it's drawn by this guy from D.C., you know, Neil Adams. And to me, that made the X-Men awesome, and it gave me a reason to, to want to pick up that book and hunt it every time. Uh, that first cover. Oh, okay. The X Men were always awesome. The X Men made Neil Adams more awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, before there that, he had only done like Dead Man for DC, and he was starting to do some Brave and Bold issues. But that was it. And then he said, "Hey, you know what? I want to see what's it like on the other side." And he's actually said in interviews, 
he actually found working for Marvel fun, but he was kind of committed to doing DC's cover work and things like that. So he had a, a pay, strong paycheck over at DC, but he was one of the first guys that were crossing over and working for both companies. Him and uh, Gil Kane, actually. Gil Kane was doing some Spider-Man work right. as well as still doing the uh, Green Lantern stuff. Um, but anyway, that was that's what made the X-Men for me and made me follow the X-Men was when Neil was drawing them. I was sad to see him go, but you know he took over a book that was absolutely failing and ready to be closed down. And Stan gave Roy Thomas the writing reins, mm-hmm. and they gave the book to uh, to Neil, and he drew, I don't know how many issues, you probably know Sean, I don't know, Maybe he doesn't know, 10 issues, 12 issues, uh, somewhere in that neck 10? of the woods. Yeah. yeah. And then, again, it, it didn't significantly sell more copies, so they ultimately canceled the book, but that then brought us the, the all new X-Men and, you know, giant size, and, Yay. you know, X-Men took off from there. <laughs> Those were great books, don't get me wrong, I still was an X-Men fan and followed them. Love those stories. But you guys asked me which run I wanted to talk about. And for me, what really made me an X-Men fan was this Neil Adams run. And that's why I chose this this run. Awesome. So. Let's dig in, guys. All right. So uh, previous to the arrival of Neil Adams, I think Roy Thomas took over in issue 54 writing. Sounds I, I think right. it was 54. Um, Arnold Drake had been writing before that. Uh, Correct. Uh, so Neil Adams comes on. He starts this storyline with the living Pharaoh, who the X-Men kind of go toe-to-toe with a couple times. And in 56, when we see that first Neil Adams page, just prior to that, Alex Summers, who is the brother of Cyclops, Scott Summers, uh, is revealed to be a mutant for the first time. <laughs> in, in revealing that, he blasts the living Pharaoh and allows the X-Men to take him prisoner. So they're flying away with him on some captured ship. And the, you see this first page splash. That's them in a rocket ship hurtling towards some ancient monument. Uh, with the angel in the foreground flying behind them. It's Pre- beautiful. Presumably over in Egypt. I would assume <laughs> Egypt. I don't think it actually says that. I No, it never does. I nope. mean, uh, there are references to what area of the world they're in. But never a country. Uh and I should mention that uh, Tom Palmer does inks over every issue that Neil pencils, I think, and uh, is every bit as good as Neil Adams. Uh, the combination of the two is awesome. Yeah. I mean, there is no question about it. They were a, um, a pair that was just made in heaven. I mean, they're just great together. Uh, Tom Palmer, I don't know he did that many things before this, mm-hmm. but when he hooked up with, with Neil on this series, Magic was made. Mm-hmm. Trust me. I think Palmer had done pencils on maybe an issue of Doctor Strange or something like that and admitted himself that it wasn't very good. And his future his. was as an inker. But having that penciling background, I think, helped prepare him for a career in inking. And, uh, and he is absolutely still, to this day, one of the best. I agree. Can't, can't disagree at all. So another thing I should mention before we get too into the story at all is uh, there's no colorist listed and I believe that's because Neil himself did the coloring on these books I believe that's correct uh, man for a 60's book these colors are crazy good I mean they they stand out to me compared to the other stuff I've read Um, just really vivid coloring even on that old newsprint it still looks amazing I don't think anybody would argue with you, Jerry. <laughs> That's right. They better not. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So yeah, they, so it. they're flying into Egypt. You know, they they've taken the um, the living Pharaoh uh, back, I guess, to uh, face the justice or face the music, is so to speak. But he's got some followers there, and so they attack the ship uh, that they're flying back in, and uh, so we see uh, the Pharaoh's followers beating up on the uh, the X Men. Yeah, that's no good. <laughs> Uh, they do get the best of them, and they start to take off. And they've got Alex with them, right? Yes, they've uh, they've stolen Alex, and they're racing away. And uh, the angel is trying to follow them, but they fire some concussion miss- missiles, and then he plummets down to the earth. And of course, earlier Jean Grey has been knocked out, so Scott Summers is just all over Jean, going Jean, Jean. You know, he worries. Are you okay? You know, are, are you alive? And of course, she is. So she decides, you know, <clears throat> that they need to contact uh, Warren because he's, you know, not with them. And this, so, this really impresses Bobby. He says, uh, "What a gal! There's nobody like her." Despite being sweet on Polaris at the time, he's he's still infatuated with Jean, just like everybody else. Well, you know, she was the the hot chick amongst the uh, four guys. So, <laughs> That's right. You know, she. Uh, had it all. So but that next panel, though. This is the one we wanted. I think we've talked about twice before. Twice before, and but there's a reason. Again, this the, <laughs> the, the bottom panel on page seven of this book is, I think, one of the best examples of an artist showing Jean using her powers. I mean, how many ways can you use somebody using mental powers? But she's got this little figure down below with these two giant eyes on either side, and then above the figures the eyes and it's pulling back and it's just to me just enough to blow your mind i think it's a great great uh example of an artist showing how to you know draw use use of mental powers yeah i think jerry you said something about the first time you ever saw something similar it was drawn by a different artist did you not and you thought that he had like he oh this is great i think alan davis i think is who you referred to that you had seen kind of a similar thing you thought oh yeah. that's very alan davis-ish right but neil did it first right yeah it was uh psylocke's butterfly effect in x-men 213 when she's uh using cerebro okay trying to f- during uh, the mutant massacre during the yeah it's post mutant massacre yeah the middle one looks like a mustache to me though <laughs> <laughs> i can't unsee it now so you guys have to so she's kind of Deal frowning there, and her upper right. lip looks bigger than her bottom one. So uh, she's Sean Fu Manchu, it's a, uh, a Fu Manchu mustache. So, yep. yeah. I don't think so, but anyway, <laughs> I think that's an awesome panel. And heck, you turn the page. Well, you don't really have to turn the page. You have to look to the next page. He draws the heck of a camel. I mean, that's a, a really <laughs> nicely drawn camel on the top of that page. Um, he his strength drawing animals seems to be with mammals. Uh, we'll see some reptiles later, and I don't think those are as strong. All right. I'm going to complain about it later. Sorry. One other thing I wanted to mention is the way he draws the angel, I think, is really, really good. I mean, when you saw Angel drawn earlier in the series, he's very stiff. I mean, it was like he was jumping off the page rather than flying. Mm -hmm. Neil actually draws him where his back is arched and his wings are, you know, akimbo or whatever. It it looks like he's actually in flight. And I think that's just a a great uh, artist capturing uh, that. No amount of good art's going to save that costume, though. (laughs) Well. You don't like the yellow and red tights look, huh? No. Well, we, the good news is he won't have it for all that long. That's true. So we'll get to that, though. I, I finally went back and tracked down where that one made its first appearance. Okay. I should have written it down. I want to say it was 
issue 32, and I want to say it was Don Heck. Editor's note, it was not issue 32, it was issue 39, but the artist was Don Heck. But if so you remember in the early that's books... That's when they all got their first... They all had the same uniform, so yeah. that was pretty boring. Yeah. So at least they were attempting to give them, you know, slightly oh. different things, but, you know... Thank God for Neil Adams, that's <laughs> all I've got to say. Well, the bottom <laughs> line in this story is that, you know, the living uh, pharaoh has captured Alex. He puts him in some kind of a hyperbolic chamber or something so that the cosmic rays don't reach him. And then all these rays then infuse him, turning him into a giant that he renames himself as, what, the living monolith? The living monolith. And he grows out of the mountainside <laughs> and grabs hold of the angel. And page uh, 11 is just a great thing, too, where the monolith is holding the angel clasped in his fist yeah. above him. I it's think that's a great possible that the living monolith is just a nickname he's given a certain member of his army. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but um, we should we should mention that uh, it's the cosmic rays that that this chamber is trapping that are uh, that fuel Alex Summers' mutant power, and I'm sure every X Men fan probably knows that already. But um, this is also the, the the power of the Living Pharaoh, and so they're splitting the power between them. Apparently so the significance so. of this chamber is that it traps Alex from absorbing any cosmic rays. And the living, uh, the living pharaoh then gets all of them, and that's enough energy to propel him into this new state uh, where he's a giant rock hard guy. Exactly. <laughs> oh, but, I saved it. But I the, saved it. But, but the feet can still be knocked out from under him by the beast on page uh, twelve, I believe that is. So, yeah. so even though you're a giant, the bigger you are, the harder you fall, I guess. That's right. But during this this fight now. You know, we have uh, Alex Summer, you know, straining, trying to somehow break out of this his chamber where he's captured in. And you see the uh, living, uh, excuse me, the whatever, the monolith now, you know, in, in celebration of beating the X-Men. And then all of a sudden, he collapses. And then we find out that Alex has broken free. And the very last panel of that book, he's like, I've got the power, but I can't control it. <laughs> So I think that's a, a great, a great ending before that cliffhanger. So that's maybe great. you know the living monolith you know got short shifted there, but uh, it's a great panel. It is. I got it when I was younger. Um, you know these were way too expensive for me to get with my allowance, but I remember reading some like Wizard magazine or something that showed like how Neil Adams' panel structure like revolutionized. And I'm sure later on in one of the issues, like, I know for a fact that, like, Beast knocking Iceman out of the window panel was one of the ones that they went to where it was like, this changed everything. Mm-hmm. And so even if you're like, oh, I don't want to go back and read those old issues, like, clearly Neil Adams was doing something that hadn't been done before. Yeah, that, he's still pretty pretty straightforward on that one. There's some mm-hmm. diagonal panels or whatever, split, you know, the page in half from the upper right to the bottom left or whatever. But uh, pretty much straightforward storytelling in, in this particular yeah. book. And we were seeing some of that in the Storenko issues, too. Exactly. Um, I mean, another guy who was considered very cutting edge at the time. Those two are contemporaries and had kind of a similar approach, a novel approach to doing layouts. So Unfortunately, he only teased us with the, you yeah. know, three covers and two issues of... Uh, 
of the X-Men. Right. And uh, they were excellent, but I don't think they were his best work, actually. No, no, I agree. His 100%. best work was in Jerry's Jam piece. What? Yeah! That was sweet. I was jealous. <laughs> I saw that. How about that? We'll, I'll pull it out in a little... I'll pull out my Jam piece. I, I will pull out the sketch <laughs> in a little while. <laughs> Jerry's always pulling out his Jam piece. <laughs> so, Greg, uh, we mentioned last time we recorded, uh, and... We should mention it again this time because it's an interesting story. Um, the cover we see at the beginning of X-Men 56, which is the first issue of the run, uh, is not the cover that Neil Adams drew originally. That's correct, Jerry. Um, he actually drew a, a nice, really nice cover. We can find it on the internet, and I think Jerry's going to do that and, and post it for the listeners is the fact that uh, it's basically a very similar cover, but the word X-Men that the uh, living Colossus is holding up above his head is actually had, uh, in the original cover, the X-Men actually strapped to it. So you had Cyclops on the X, uh, Gene hanging from the first part of the M, uh, Bobby from the second part of the M, Warren from the E, and the N has the beast on him. So they're kind of covering up the letters, but it's only got, like, the living Colossus's upper body, so it's a much more powerful cover, and then it's got Alex in that tube that prevents the cosmic rays from reaching him, uh, showing, you know, coming forward. It's really a cool cover, but from my understanding, Stan said no to Neil, and Neil got a little bit uh, pissy about it, <laughs> but ultimately, you know, Stan was in charge, so he won. But Stan felt that the X-Men strapped to the logo uh, covered up the logo so that you could not tell it wasn't ex- the, the words X-Men. I mean, if you look, you can tell that's the word X-Men. But mm-hmm. he has something to be said. is because, you know, comics were on spinner racks back then. They didn't have them on walls, you know, so you could see the whole cover like we do today. Mm-hmm. So all you got to see was that logo up at the top of the comic because there was another comic in the next rack below it right. covering up all but that logo and then the comic below that. Mm-hmm. So Stan had a point. You know, it was not clear or easily seen that that was an X-Men comic. So I think he was correct in asking Neil to redraw it. But Neil drew not quite as powerful a cover, mm-hmm. cover, but still a good cover. I actually like the red background cover better than the green that he used on the original yeah. if he, in fact, did the coloring of that. Yeah, I think the original is probably the stronger composition, but mm-hmm. I think from a marketing perspective, I agree that it's probably the right idea to go with it. But again, that's one of those little-known stories that exist probably on most of the comics that we as fans never hear, hear about. But Neil has talked about the fact that he really liked that first cover, and Stan said, nope, <laughs> not going to work. <laughs> ah, better luck next time, Neil. Yep. And presumably he did, because the next cover on 57 is 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 really strong cover. Yeah. That's the Sentinel cover, so mm-hmm. that's great. So we move to issue 57. I'll keep this on track, even if you guys refuse to. It's your show, but I, I don't want to be here another five hours. <laughs> so the next uh, issue has a great Sentinel cover, so we kind of forecast who the bad guys are here. Yeah. And some uh, funny green guy down below saying the Sentinels live. And uh, things kind of change because we open the the book and we see actually it's Lorna Dane or Polaris um, being uh, actually uh, attacked by the Sentinels. Where did they come from? Exactly. So then they jumped. So she's captured and then they jump back to Egypt and we see the whole thing with Alex, you know, how he broke free and discovered his powers, but he's having trouble keeping, you know, the control of them. And then there's this 
whole thing basically where some other guys attack the X-Men and so they have to fight them off. And right, these are the local constibulary, I guess. They, there you they go. show up to uh, sort out the mess and and the X-Men are like, hey, arrest this guy. I'm talking about the living pharaoh, but it turns out he knows the cops. So yeah. of course that's going to go south. And, and the X-Men decide to beat up the cops because that's what they do. They fight authority. And, and in the meantime, Alex slips away. Which really, really angers Scott Summers. <laughs> exactly. He's trying to help his kid brother, and <clears throat> he runs off in the middle of a fight. And these camel jockeys, according to him, did this. Yeah, that's a little rough. <laughs> this dates the piece a little bit, I would say. But uh, but now he's so mad that the gloves are off. And in a great panel on the next page, you just see these, these cops getting wiped out. <laughs> In a, a nice vibrant red panel, it's awesome. One shot it takes them all out. It is. So then they shift, and the, we show us Alex in hiding out in the cave, and lo and behold, a sentinel <laughs> manages to come out of the darkness of the cave. Was he there the whole time? Did he burrow under the ground and come up because he sensed them there? We don't know, but he's obviously captured by a sentinel. So the X Men, you know, have no clue, but. Uh, for some reason, they decide to send Bobby and uh, Hank back home. It seems that they've got cameras in Lorna's apartment for oh. some reason and are able to look at those cameras from Egypt or wherever they are. And they realize the apartment's been trashed and Lorna's nowhere to be found. So Bobby and Hank uh, take the captured spaceship or rocket launcher, whatever that thing is, and they fly back to America, leaving Scott and Gene and Warren to look for... Uh, Scott's brother, Alex. Poor Alex. Exactly. So the next scene, as uh, we uh, talked about, is is Bobby and Hank brushing into Lorna's apartment, and the police are there. There's obviously been a disturbance reported. So <laughs> and wherever and there's police, there's X Men fighting police. There you so go. So Bobby freezes one guy's gun, and the other chucks a chair at him, <laughs> <laughs> knocking Bobby against Hank, sending him outside, falling through space in the window that. Sean had previously yeah, alluded panels. to. So we have kind of like a, a ladder-like panel going from the upper left to the bottom right with a couple of triangular panels at the top right and bottom left uh, showing Hank falling from the skyscraper and uh, Bobby Iceman is able to swoop in on a nice slide and save them both and also get away from the police. And if there were a Neil Adams page anywhere in this run that he did. Like this is the Neil Adams page. I would say this is it. Really? This is I mean the, to me this is the one that stands out from the rest of the run it, as far as you, you know being talked about by people like oh when Neil Adams was on he did this. Yeah. I think there's I think there's a better one in <laughs> one of the store on issues but that's just me. I'm biased. Wow. You're allowed to have more favorite panels. Huh? Again, it's only his second issue, and I think it is an outstanding page design. I don't know if it's you know iconic, but it certainly captures... You iconic, know, that's the word I was looking for. There you go. I'm glad to share it with you. <laughs> Just pay me a quarter and you can use it. I'll bet I said iconic the first time we recorded this. You probably did. Probably the first probably. two times. Probably, probably, yeah. <laughs> so, so that pretty much ends that second issue, really. I mean, you know, we got well, Bobby see, and... They turn on the TV and right. there's a judge talking about the mutant menace and so... Uh, Beast judge Chalmers. Yep. Oh, that's right. Judge Hank Chalmers. asks uh, 
Bobby to quiet down and they start watching this news report and they realize that it's a uh, the son of Bolivar Trask, Larry Trask, discussing um, bringing the Sentinels back onto the market. So that's the little green guy on the cover. Yep, and you Larry see Trask. the the last panel of the page is a a shot from an outside window, uh, looking in on Hank and Bobby, and it's a Sentinel standing outside the window. So we moved to issue fifty eight. <laughs> kind of a cool cover. Yeah, uh, if you didn't know it, it says "Enter the Man Called Havoc." If you didn't know it already, that uh, turns out to be uh, Alex Summer in the really the first look at his costume, though it's certainly not yellow and orange, thank goodness. It's not, but that is a really cool use of negative space. <laughs> I like it. It is. It's an excellent cover. And again, another great splash page with a sentinel busting in on uh, Bobby and Hank. Though uh, the icing that Bobby's doing almost makes it look like he's got, or maybe that's the drapes behind him, like, almost looks like he's got wings Warren's wings there. Yeah. yeah, it does. <laughs> it's like, what? Wait a minute. But that's him icing up, but it might be the curtains behind him. So they uh, have a, now a couple-page battle against the uh, the Sentinel. Uh, page three is a great one. It almost looks Silver Surfer-ish, the way that uh, Neil has drawn uh, yeah. Bobby uh, use, forming his ice slide and fleeing from the... or avoiding the yeah, Sentinel. I thought it was cool that they, they had the, uh, the Trask like, commentary on the TV kind of placed over the fight as he's discussing how but that's what they were design. watching right yeah. so that's still going on in the background so they bring that in and it's it is a nice touch though thanks and for it, mentioning that. it kind of paces the fight too gives you an idea of how long it yeah. goes on I mean this isn't a bing bang boom it's over like right they're they're tearing <laughs> up the place yeah right and actually uh, you know what you see uh, a lot of people don't like Bobby Drake or think he's the weak link but he chooses to sacrifice himself here to allow Hank to escape. Yep. So you got to give him kudos for that. You know? I also I like the fact that uh, Hank smashes a vase into the television at, at that, when that happens, kind of ending. Well, so much for that commentary. We're, <laughs> we're done with that. So, uh, so Hank uh, peels out of his costume, uh, and apparently the Sentinel either was happy with just one mutant or, you know, didn't notice that, uh, you know, they unmasked... Hank McCoy was walking down the street. I have to suspect that they were happy with just one mutant. Yeah. Yeah. One's good enough, especially if it's Bobby, because he's awesome. <laughs> or whatever. True. He is. So then the, the scene jumps back to Egypt. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Egypt, we missed you so much. <laughs> and, uh... This is, where we get, this is where we get Angel's great, uh, you know, problem-solving skills where he's like, you know... I think I can just flap there. Yeah. They they decide they need to get back to the States to see right. what's going on. and uh, Of course, they don't have the, the rocket ship or whatever they were using anymore. So they're going to have to take a commercial flight back, but that's not fast enough for, for good old Warren. He's going to fly back on his two little non-supersonic wings. That's because he was once known as... The Avenging Angel, and that makes all the difference. It makes all the difference, as he keeps reminding us throughout this Neil Adams run. <laughs> so he's going to fly home. And then they jump back, and we see uh, Bobby Drake being uh, captured, what well, we saw him captured earlier, brought into some mountain fortress in front of uh, Larry Trask, who uh, rants and raves about you know his father's death and all that kind of stuff. And tricks Bobby into attacking him. Catching it on camera so he can use that against mutants later in a televised event. Yep. 
And this is where we first see uh, Alex Summer in costume on page 10 of this story. As Bobby is flung to the ground, and there's some black-clad feet there. He looks up, and there's Alex Summer in an all-black costume with some white concentric rings and some fancy weird headdress with a red gem in the, <coughs> excuse me, in the middle of his forehead. And that gem will be important later <laughs> Later in the issue as Sean's issue falls apart. Sean was so excited he just ripped the page right out of the book. <laughs> uh, in the background we see a unconscious Lorna Dane in her Polaris costume still. Yep. And Bobby's all concerned about her. And Ooh. I notice her headdress now is missing that weird shamrock thing that Steranko had put on it. I could not figure out what that thing was. But it's gone now, thankfully. So Neil probably, uh, you know, simplified it a little bit. Or saw no purpose. That's possible. Or he just moved it over to Havoc's costume. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's kind of a a weird headdress. But we see... Well, it's not really... Yeah, we do. On page 11, we see for the first time... I told this story before, so I'm going to tell it again. Please do. Uh, I got a Havoc sketch from Neil Adams a while back, and... He told me when he was doing it that everybody always draws Havoc wrong. He's got those concentric rings, and everybody always draws them in the middle of his chest. But the right way to draw it is from whatever perspective he is in relation to the camera, the the concentric rings should always be coming from the middle of his body. If he's got his side to you, they should be coming from the middle of his side. And that's so you see that for the first time on page 11 when he's, he's got his back to the camera. And they're, they're just coming out from the center of him. But then he unleashes his power for the first time in costume on that page, and it is awesome. It is. But then you see that uh, good old Trask is uh, controlling Havoc by the uh, gem on his little headdress. And uh, he zaps him. They figure out that he somehow is controlling him, but they, they can't put together that the, it's the gem on his forehead. That, and it somehow has the ability to just shut his... Power of absorbing cosmic rays off. Well, it was only two pages there, so, you know. Yeah. They didn't figure that out that quickly. (laughs) And Polaris cannot fight back because she is locked in anti-polar armbands, which is Silver Age code for we just did it somehow. (laughs) I missed that. Yeah. Me too. I really do. Like, sometimes when I see people on the internet, like, picking apart everything about current books... Uh I'm just like, isn't there just a moment where you're like, it's comics? I just... Yeah. Like, you have to suspend belief yeah. sometimes and just enjoy Like, there's it. not a guy that shoots cosmic rays out of his chest. He had to burst <laughs> your bubble. Like, so we don't need an explanation for everything. But I, I find that anti-polar, you think that would work better against Bobby Drake, Iceman. Yeah. You know, you think that anti-polar would be like some kind of a heat thing. But because her name, superhero name is Polaris, they thought, well, how, what do we use? We'll call it anti-polar. But we could have used these anti-polar armbands during this polar vortex. There you go. That. We we all could have. Wrote that down. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, then, then we get Neil drawing a real person at the top of page uh, 13. And yeah. Was that Chet Huntley? Chet, Chet Brinkley? Yeah, sure. One of the famous news guys back in the 60s. These younger guys are looking at going, I don't know who the heck it is. But, <laughs> That's me. Uh, I think that one is supposed to be uh, David Brinkley. Because he actually refers, to, he says, sounds a bit familiar, doesn't it, Chet? So I think that's his partner, mm-hmm. but it was uh, 
Anyway. The only newsman in my life is Bill Bonds. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Havoc being shut off stops him from absorbing cosmic rays, and when he stops absorbing cosmic rays, that means the living pharaoh starts absorbing more. And he's excited because he's changing back to the living monolith until the sentinels show up. And they cover him in yellow goo that <laughs> shuts prevents, him. that shuts him down. Exactly. And now he's captured as well. Yep. And of course, then they jumps the, the angel flying back on his own. <laughs> <laughs> and guess what? He's a sitting duck. He's a sitting, <laughs> a sitting pigeon. <laughs> no offense, Sean. It's alright. <laughs> and the, the sentinels, uh, capture uh, Warren as well. But, you know, what just I found in interesting... <laughs> exactly. The jet that, that Scott and Gene are on just happened to be flying by at that moment. And they're waving to him. <laughs> so long, sucker. It's Warren. What can we do? It's the hardest thing of all, Gene. Nothing. <laughs> laugh? They could laugh? Oh, yep. What an idiot. Bot- bottom of uh, page 15. Ah. We see the, the Sentinels busting in on a couple of villains. Mesmero and... Magneto. Magneto, who I believe the people have thought dead at this point in time. So that was during the Storenko <coughs> issues, right? I believe so. That he was the main villain in those issues. These two were paired up. Yep. yep. So Mesmero was still serving... Uh, but it turns Magneto. out that it's not actually Magneto because he gets blasted by one of the Sentinels and it turns out that Magneto was a robot the entire time. Dun, dun, dun! Oh! Snap! Huge reveal for people that were reading monthly at this time, or by monthly It was, was. It? you know, you think Magneto, he's this awesome bad guy, you know, you love to hate him, but, you know, he's right up there with the Red Skull and Doctor Doom with Where Marvel villains. Mm-hmm. And then here it turns out he's a lousy stinking robot! <laughs> Unfortunately for Mesmero, who's powerless against the Sentinels. Exactly. He was trying to hide behind Magneto at the time. So that doesn't go well for him. So he's captured as well. So then they move on and we get the little backstory about uh, Larry Trask and uh, why he's uh, doing what he's doing to revenge his father, who he thinks the X-Men did away with. And that was back in issue 16 when it actually happened. That uh, the master mold that was making all the sentinels for Bolivar Trask turned on him, and so he sacrificed himself to destroy the master mold. That's that's the issue I have signed by Stanley. Well, that's Atta cool. Boy. I love that issue. <laughs> I wish you guys could see the look on Sean's face. He's adoration. Ah. Well, you know, the Sentinels had only been around since, what, issue 11 or 12 or something yeah. like that. So, they, I mean, they had only been around for a short time, and here they are. You know, this guy's making sacrifices, you know, and doing away with them. And we didn't have not seen them in a while. But they're alive here and well. And improved. They're bigger. Cooler looking. I think, um, I forget who was penciling over Kirby's layouts in those issues, but I don't think they looked very good. But these Sentinels are pretty sweet. I'm sorry, Sean. The f- Back in the teens. Back in the nuffies. Jack was drawing <coughs> yeah. the layouts. Yeah, he was doing the layouts. Still but looks he wasn't... sweet. That cover where they're busting Oh, no, through. that's all Jack Kirby. Yeah, yeah the, cover. the cover is okay. Jack Kirby, but uh, the, the interior art is not Jack. Oh. He, I mean, he he laid out the panels, but he didn't do any of the finishes on it. So Jerry's correct. Shit, man. 
This podcast like burst my bubble all the time because it's like, no, this thing that you thought was happening. These guys were actually he was too busy to do this, doing the Avengers. He had to please Greg Turner. Yeah, he wasn't an X Men fan. He he had his real love in the Fantastic Four. Jack didn't draw enough Avengers issues for the record either. He did the same thing like he did with the X Men. He drew the first ten or twelve issues, and then they turned it over to to other guys where he was too busy drawing Thor and Fantastic Four. I think you meant to say. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. But anyway. I don't know my silver age. What can I say? I guess that's why you invited me. That is true. That's why right. we well, have you, you here. All we right. do have to dude, we do have to get back on track here and mention that uh this entire time Larry Trask is wearing a medallion that his father gave to him. His bling. You'd almost I mean, think this was the seventies with this medallion. It's a right. big shiny. Yeah, you'd have to wonder. Like hubcap. there was a moment where he'd be like, Why why did my father make sure that I never took this off? And why is it so huge? No, no, no. So he, apparently he wears it when he showers and does yes. other things as well. Well, it's big enough he can get his clothes <laughs> on and off around it. It's not, a, it's not a problem. Yeah, it's on his big chain, too. Yeah. It's sweet. I mean, it's so sweet. Why would you question it? You, That's true. Why, you, why would you want to take it off? Well, in the end of this story, Judge Chalmers punches out Larry Trask and takes it off. Yeah. Larry Trask is about to pull the trigger on all these mutants he's captured, including the Banshee, who, who just makes showed an, up. Yes. an appearance. And I don't remember if it was in this episode or another one where I said, I like the way that they used to draw Banshee really creepy looking, like a real Banshee. He's like a, like a, like ghostly, gaunt. Page 15, and, he's pretty, uh, pretty ghostly there. So yeah. He comes screaming in. It's cool. He yeah. tricks them, the Sentinels. He goes peacefully when the Sentinels capture him, but as soon as he's inside this base, he lays one out, and he's about to take out everybody when they, they get the best of him. And now he's captive too. And then Judge Chalmers takes the medallion off of him, and it, the second he makes the... Before he does, Trask makes the order that the, uh, the Sentinels should kill all the mutants. Correct. And then Judge Chalmers rips the medallion off, and it's revealed that Larry Trask is a mutant, and the medallion blocked him from the Sentinels. Dun, dun, dun. So now that he's a mutant, he's the first one the Sentinels are going to take <laughs> out. You have to be careful what you order the Sentinels to do, you know? Yep. So, moving to the next issue. Issue 59, Do or Die, Baby. <laughs> Sean probably likes this cover. It's a, a great uh, Cyclops cover. I knew this was the first really, really old... Oh, sorry. <laughs> Back issue that I got when I was a youngster. Sorry. That's all right. You know, I classic. Take, I take Would you prefer classic? No, oh, it's a really old back issue. All the way back to 1969. I think Neil liked a lot of the Hugh Green because there's a lot of panels that he drew using, if he was truly the colorist. Yeah. That he you guys green. told me that it was somebody else. And Neil had hired his kid and his kid just had only a green uh, crayon. Sorry, Sean. It's, it's possible, but I don't think so. Comics are ruined. I think Jerry and I both agree that I think that, that Neil was doing the colors for here. I'm pretty yeah. sure. He, he was just on three episodes of Fat Man on Batman and they talked about this run and I want to well, say... want to listen to me then if, if Neil himself has been on he only about. It was only very briefly because... Kevin Smith wanted to talk Batman. So uh, he did claim to have plotted most of this, yeah. saying that Roy Thomas scripted it. After yeah, Roy has gone out uh, on the uh, on record as saying that he and Neil worked very closely together, that Neil was very involved in the, the writing process, or at least in the, the plotting process, mm-hmm. that he's made no bones about it. I mean, it's, it's not credited to him, I don't think, 
uh, Neil any credit, except I think actually issue number 65, uh, Neil did like write the whole thing. I mean, Roy's name may be on it, but and I have to admit that it's not quite as good as <laughs> the ones that Roy was scripting. <laughs> Sorry, Neil. But. So anyway, we've got now everybody back in the U- good old U.S. of A. And, U.S.A. Uh, you know, Scott and Gene have hooked up with Hank, and they've uh, found out where the uh, this mountain hideout is, and they're uh, attempting to uh, break into the uh, the secret headquarters of Larry Trask and the Sentinels. One nice thing about this uh, <clears throat> this issue number fifty nine, they bring in uh, other mutants, so yep. we actually get to see. Uh, Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch and the Toad being captured and also uh, the Blob, Eunice the Untouchable and Mastermind uh, and apparently they're all put in these cylinders that somehow keep them from using their powers and maybe keep them even from being awake. I can't quite tell if they're you know asleep standing up in these these cylinders or not. But there is kind of a, a neat panel on page uh, six here. Um, again, I know, is this Cerebro that's, that's supposed to be happening right well, here? Well, this is, I guess, the Sentinels version of Cerebro. Okay. With their, their mutant detector. I forget yep. what... So it's kind of psychedelic or whatever. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Not sure. It's just kind of a neat psychedelic panel. It's like, whoa, what's that? So we see uh, Scott and Hank and Gene scaling the mountainside, and they finally bust in and attack a Sentinel. The great uh, panel again of Cyclops blasting this uh, Sentinel on the bottom of page eight. I, I just tweeted this panel iconic, today. Uh, oh, I love panel. that panel. It's a great panel. I actually think I drew this. Uh, I probably have some art drawn by Greg Turner showing Cyclops in that uh, ripped off pose from Neil Adams. Nice. <laughs> Back in the day, I was a bit of an amateur artist, so uh, you couldn't, you know, emulate. Anyone better than Neil Adams, in my opinion. No, so, sir. I've got a few X-Men drawn things that definitely reflect Neil Adams' uh, artwork. So, the bottom line is that uh, somewhere off-panel, we have a, a big switch going on. You know, you don't That's really right. find out until a page or two later when uh, we think these captured mutants that are being brought forward, they've got, you know, Scarlet Witch, the... Uh, Quicksilver and the Toad, but the Toad uh, lashes out uh, and smacks a Sentinel. Quicksilver uses some sort of eye blast to knock out another Sentinel. It's like, what? (laughs) But no, the X-Men have changed costumes. In a brilliant move to confuse the Sentinel. Apparently, it was the costumes all on that they were drawn to rather than the the mutant powers, apparently. It seems that the Sentinels are programmed to respond to specific threats when when they're sent in, you know they we're going to be going to catch <coughs> Iceman, so we're going to prepare you with weapons that will defeat Iceman. So they they switch it up and and get the best of the Sentinels that are guarding the door. Pretty cool. Yep. Another nice panel on page fourteen of uh, Jean Grey using her powers while dressed as uh, the Scarlet Witch. That's right. Uh, this, to me, is like a Phoenix Force effect, kind of in the way it's colored. You know, without the flaming bird. Right. Of course, but... So, uh, and they're attacking the Sentinels, and then who comes to the aid of the X-Men? Judge Chalmers. 
Yep. He flings himself into the path of a, a blast. And of course, the Sentinels were, you know, charged with protecting humans. And now they've done harm to a human. Right. That's really cool. Uh, the, the Their reaction to it. One of them just uh, kind of has a meltdown about it. Oh, here. Disaster! Disaster! <laughs> just a look of shock on this poor Sentinel's face. So they're paralyzed for a minute trying to figure out how to proceed from there. Yep. And Scott makes the most of it blasting Havoc out of his cell. Yep. He does. Just cry Havoc! Alex says as he blasts a Sentinel. He does that a lot. <laughs> so I think uh, maybe one of our, our two other versions of this podcast, Sean pointed out that he actually loved the way this story is resolved. Yeah. Because his hero, Cyclops, uses logic to defeat the Sentinels. Yeah, he's right. like, way to go, Angel. Nice job on flying all the way here and getting captured instead of just hiding <laughs> on the plane, getting there, and just going, hey, if you're to destroy mutants, you should probably go to the source of mutation, source of life, which is the sun. And so all the sentinels blast off, and in a sweet splash page, you see all these sentinels flying into the sun. Into the sun. In a line, one after another. Like, like lemmings. There right? we go. Jinx. And who better to outthink a bunch of robots than another robot like oh, Scott yeah. Summers? Dick. <laughs> so then we see that Havoc's buried under some rubble, so they're like, we got to get him to a doctor. Right. So in the final page, you see them discuss that they're going to call. You see a person pick up the phone, and he's like, this is Dr. Lycos. Of course, bring that mutant here. It's of the highest importance. So it's some colleague of, of Professor, Professor, X. X. Or Professor Xavier, if you prefer. Yep. So. And so that is where we are going to leave it for this episode. Next episode, we're going to be talking some more Neil Adams, the second half of his run. And... I think Sean would say the better half of oh, his yeah. run. <laughs> We're going to see some Sauron action, people. So, Greg, you will be back for that. I uh, hope to. Uh, in the meantime, uh, folks will obviously be fans of yours after this. So where can they check out the stuff that you do comic-related these days? Well, I do uh, write uh, two different blogs for Back to the Past, uh, the comic shop. I believe you can find that at GoBackToThePast.com. Uh, on Fridays, I rotate between two columns. One is called Retro Review, where I pick a uh, book from my vast collection and review it, talk about it pretty much in depth like we do right here on the podcast. And then I also alternate, with, alternate Fridays with a uh, column I call Fabulous Finds, where, again, I go into my collection or on the internet to find something awesome that maybe today's uh, people aren't aware of, something that took place back in the, or some collectible back from the, the 60s or 70s or whatever, and I bring that to light with pictures and talk about that, you know, if it's from my collection, how I got it and why, etc., or, you know, why I went out on the internet and found out about it or whatever. So I hope the, that people find that interesting. I do get comments. So if you if you like this part, please check that out. Do it, people. We demand it. So uh, that wraps up this segment, but stick around. We'll be right back. Previously on X-Men. Man, Sean, that was a really fun chat we had with Mr. Greg Turner. Yes, it was. For the third time. <laughs> Why you got to rub it in? I didn't ask for that. It's not entirely <laughs> your fault. 
It is nearly entirely my fault. I can't make too many accusations or digs when it comes to that, since I put the least amount of work into this podcast. Well, you bring all the good looks, so it's it's a fair deal. Audio. Yeah. I've got a face for audio. I will cut that out. <laughs> cut that out, Jerry. All right, Sean, let's talk some X-Men reread. I'm... Like I said, I'm totally enjoying it. I just, uh, the other day I was in a conversation with a a, a guy named Jay Pooch on Twitter, and we were uh, going back and forth about X-Men stuff and uh, in a direct message because I didn't want to clog everybody's feed with a bunch of nonsense. And it was weird because I've read this stuff like once or twice. I've done the entire from giant size to the present read of Uncanny X-Men and uh, X-Men once a few years ago but it was weird when I talked to him it was like I can rattle off shit from my childhood the issues that everybody else was like this is crap you know you're early 300 X-Men and, mm-hmm. um, just without even looking at anything I can tell you issue numbers what stories were about who drew it who was inking it blah 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 and I was like that's that's my problem right now we're not in my prime like some of this stuff is still <laughs> very like uh, if they if they weren't like the big points that everyone talks about, mm-hmm. I tend to uh, get a little lost because much like if you um, cram a television show, you tend to everything becomes a blur. Yeah. So I, I like that we're taking this in small chunks so that I can uh, try to savor it. This will be like our own self-taught course in the X Men. We will use. This and only this is our guide, and we will glean as much from it as we can. Yes. Plus the internet. When I'm old and (laughs) decrepit. Because you know what happened is um, when I was a kid, I remember one, uh, my birthday one year, I remember getting some X-Men toys, and they were like odds and end villains that I was looking for. Like, you're not even going to know who these characters are, but I got Comcast. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I I am very familiar with Comcast, and Comcast is the biggest villain in the world. <laughs> Fair enough. Wait, are we talking about the same Comcast? We are not. Oh. And I remember one of the other toys was uh, Slayback, which was, I believe, a uh, Wolverine villain. Okay. Um, the reason that I bring this up is because I vividly remember as a child being like, oh, and Cruel was another one, Cruel, K-R-U-L-E. He was like a purple guy with like a, um, like an orange ponytail with like a, like a ball on the end with spikes and he'd just whip his hair around. And the, <laughs> and the toy came with like, you'd snap that part on and his head would just whip around. Nice. And I remember looking at those and I was like, I looked at my friend Chris and I was like, I'm always going to remember these. Like, I'll never forget the names of these characters. And the other day I was reading uh, Peter David's newest issue of... <laughs> <laughs> oh, my son is pounding at the door. So as I was reading this uh, Peter David X-Factor issue, like, it ends with some obscure 90s characters being revealed. And it took me, like, 20 minutes to remember who the character was and I refused to google it like I was like no no like this is what you train for your entire life Sean <laughs> this fucking obscure 90s character you will not lose it well, I remembered 
Thank God. And it was awesome. Who was it? Fatal. Oh, okay. And one of them was Reaper. Yeah. Yeah. That's that good. Yeah. That's good stuff. It was a, it was a big moment. So we should probably uh, start talking about stuff that people will remember in the future. That's right. Except for me. <laughs> Previously on X-Men. So we last left off after uh, Burns' first issue on the X-Men, which was 108. It was really cool, as I recall. Armageddon now. So that leaves us here at issue 109. Opens with them returning to the mansion. And they're all relieved, of course. After nearly dying in space, they're glad to be home. And uh, surprisingly, we see Wolverine say, It's about time, too. i got to get out of these threads before I start climbing the walls. I was and thinking about that because you mentioned that maybe it was Byrne who wanted him in that costume. And I was like, I wonder if it was Cockrum that wanted him in that costume, stuck him in that costume. And then Byrne was like, screw this. Right. Yeah, well, I did a little bit of digging. Okay. And I found out. And I guess it was decided that his red and blue costume wasn't very Wolverine. You mean yellow and blue? Yeah, yellow and blue. What did I say, Brown? You said red and blue. Red. Don't you remember when Wolverine was red and blue? <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. So, um, yeah, his original costume was not Wolverine-like enough. Uh, so they had Cockrum sit down and, and try to figure out something else. And according to him, he drew dozens and dozens of, of costume designs and couldn't come up with anything that anybody liked. And the costume that he debuted in 108 which was the one that Wolverine stole, was originally intended to become his permanent costume from that point on. But then he left the book after 107. And uh, I guess I, I didn't find this written anywhere, but uh, obviously you're right. Byrne must have taken a look at it and said, I'm not drawing that. I like the blue one. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, he, he ditches it literally as fast as he can. So they, they head home. Everybody... Immediately runs to their rooms to get some private time to do whatever people do in the privacy of their own rooms. Storm heads up to her little uh, attic room, attic room, and it looks exactly as you would expect. And this is something that Nightcrawler set up for her. And I couldn't remember what issue it was, but I wanted to reference it. Yeah, we've covered it already. It we was have. it was before 100, right, or was it after 100? I think it was after. Anyway, so this is courtesy of Nightcrawler, but she's now really made it her own. It's lush with green vegetation, and she immediately ditches her costume, and as she's wont, she bathes herself in her own self-created rainstorm in all of her naked glory. Enough said about that. Comic book crush. <laughs> I just really like Storm. What can I say? Look at her. Yeah. She is... She is fine. Then um, you get a moment between Jean and Corsair where he asks her to keep his secret from Scott. Right. So this is a recap uh, that was previously unmentioned mm -hmm. in issue 108. And Aurora overhears. But Aurora is not happy about it. No. She doesn't think it's fair and that she thinks Jean should tell him. Does she think she should tell him? I just said that. She thinks that Corsair shouldn't have asked that of her. She does say that if she had found out that her father was alive and Jean hadn't told her that she'd hate her. So. Just flat out. See, she doesn't mince words. She yeah. just says it like she means it. 
you know? Calls it like she's seen. Whatever. That's why she's an X-Men leader. That's right. She is leadership material. This whole group is rife with leadership material. Everyone except the actual leader, Cyclops. Fuck you. (laughs) So that's where you find out that Lorna and Alex have left to go to Muir Island. Hooking up and hanging out with... Jamie Madrox. Man, what a party that must have been, huh? The yeah. three of them, or four of them, or five of them, or however many Lorna needed. It's really weird. I'm starting to notice you got holes in the page. Yeah, that's newsprint that's starting to decay. Pretty soon it's going to be Swiss cheese. Son of a bitch. While my high-quality omnibus will be forever crisp white pages with vibrant colors. I'm going to set your house on fire. <laughs> Uh, Nightcrawler and Scott have an argument that is my favorite moment from this book, I think. Yeah. Scott's brooding, watching Jean talk to his, her parents and, and thinking, man, we really need to have a talk about our situation because things are changing. And Nightcrawler walks in and he's like, what's your problem, man? And Scott's like, you don't understand. And Nightcrawler's like, you think I don't understand having problems? Look at me, dude. And he says, if you keep tearing your guts apart every time you think the world's shafted you, you'll destroy not only yourself, but those who love you. And it really strikes a chord with Scott. And I think he kind of, he doesn't stop Scott from going down a really negative road because that's just his way at this point. But uh, I think he puts the brakes on it. It's honestly, it's moments like that. That make me really excited for the um, upcoming Chris Claremont written Nightcrawler series. Yeah. Strictly because, like, when Nightcrawler died, spoiler, <laughs> um, they were all fighting for the same thing. And now it's been a couple years and everyone's divided. Scott's basically looked at as a terrorist. So I wonder what his... Like, it's a great and amazing X-Men that he's back and everything, but I'm really interested to see, like, how the shake-up in the X-Men book happens when he comes back. Yeah. Uh, to kind of, uh... You think he tries to sit Wolverine and Cyclops down? I think that say, he... let's see if we can work through this? I think he probably goes to Logan first. Mm-hmm. Well, if he was going to go to somebody, he'd probably be Logan, I would think. Yeah. Especially and, since Logan's going to save him. And works from there. Yeah. But, yeah, I think that that would be his style as Peacemaker. I think he would say, you guys got to fix this. You can't do this. This is stupid. Let's hope. So there's another great moment in this issue where Wolverine says that he's going to head out into the woods and go hunting. And Aurora comes after him. Oh, no, wait. He doesn't say he's going to go hunting. He invites himself along on their picnic that they're going to go on. And they're all dressed in casual clothes, and he shows up in his costume. Because <laughs> Byrne really wanted to draw. Probably. He, he draws the shit out of it. And he is wearing the biggest belt buckle you will ever see. Oh, yeah. It's awesome. My sisters in the 80s would have fucking loved that belt buckle. <laughs> I need a belt buckle that big right now. Yeah, you do. But please continue, I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, no. She just, uh, he mentions that he's not crashing the picnic. He just needs a lift to the far side of the river. Says he's been out of the woods for too long and he's itching to do some hunting. And Aurora hits him with a take the life of innocent animals, not for survival, but merely for sport. 
And Logan fires back, even if I would, Broad, what's flaming business of it is yours. I said hunting, honey bunch. I said nothing about killing. It takes no skill to kill. What takes skill is sneaking up close enough to a skittish doe to touch her. And then Storm goes on to say that she misjudged her. And the reason why this, like, is, I think, important in the issue is you're still, now you're, you know, a good 20 issues, 25 issues into the team being together. And they still haven't come together. Like, everyone's still real standoffish to Logan. And mm-hmm. it's just interesting to see how far they've come, how trusting everyone is of Logan. But at this point, it's like everybody, everything that he does, every time he turns around, it's like, quit trying to hit on Gene's women. Yeah. Quit trying to kill a bunch of animals in the woods, you dick. Right. Like, nobody gets him. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, I don't know, I find that to be so interesting. Yeah, it's, it's a cool storytelling device, you know, this whole Kate Wolverine mysterious and without pulling the curtain back too far to make Sean uncomfortable it is on record that um, Claremont and Cockrum weren't really sure what to do with Wolverine in the beginning they had that problem with Thunderbird where he was too much like Wolverine so they killed him and I think they were heading down the road where they were going to have to take care of Wolverine too because they just weren't comfortable writing him and so all the Wolverine fans out there can thank John Byrne for keeping Wolverine around because without him I think uh, Wolverine probably would not have been long for this title and had he left this title there really wasn't anywhere else for him to land he wasn't heading to the Avengers the champions were gone the defenders maybe but it would have been a really weird fit I think he wouldn't have been able to support his own uh, solo title at this point. Nobody had one outside of Spider-Man, Cap, and Iron Man. So he's he's probably toast. I mean, he's probably the trapster if he leaves this book. You know, but John Byrne, a native Canadian, said, there's no way you're taking the only Canadian in Marvel Comics and kicking him off the book. I'll figure out what to do with him. And the rest is history. Yeah. So thanks, John Byrne. Yes. A lot of people think you're a jerk, but you owe, we owe you kudos for that one. See, it's the people think that he's a jerk. That's what bothers me. That's what I don't want to see behind the curtain. Yeah. Yeah, you know? I mean, if you just look at the page, he does awesome stuff on the page. Yeah. But he's just a no BS kind of guy. That's the thing. I mean, he he knows he's good. But he gives other people credit when they're good, too. Yeah. He just takes a crap on people publicly a lot. And I think it rubs some people the wrong way. Yeah. What are you going to do? So you see, uh, after Wolverine apologizing, or Storm apologizing to Wolverine, you see this weird uh, Death Star-looking panel with the first shadowy appearance of what we will know as Weapon Alpha soon. Very soon, as it turns out. Because on the next page, Wolverine begins his hunt, and Weapon Alpha bursts from the ground and attacks him. And then there's a huge throwdown between the two of them, which doesn't work out too great for Wolverine. He gets clobbered pretty quickly and thrown into the midst of their little skinny-dipping picnic that they're having. Colossus takes exception to uh, Weapon Alpha picking on Wolverine, and he goes all metallic. Um, in the panel where he does, uh, 
use his mutant power, uh-huh. I still, for some odd re- well, not for some odd reason, but it that image right there makes me think of the early 90s at the skate station after school. <laughs> what? <laughs> Explain yourself. On my roller skates, all right? Listening to Motown Philly by the Boys to Men as I roller s- <laughs> <laughs> as I roller skate over to the arcade section of the skating station. And oh, I, where the X Men game I is? Dump my quarters into the X Men game, which I now have downloaded onto my PS3, and we should totally play it. It's a blast. Yeah. And he does the. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was the guy I always played. Oh, I was always Colossus. Yeah. Because you just you were like one day. Somebody's going to say the wrong thing to me, and I'm just going to go, <laughs> My fist! <laughs> I want to get, get you super drunk one night, and we'll go out and we'll pick a fight with somebody, and I just want you to run in there and be like, <laughs> Hey, fat guy, settle down. <laughs> It'll be awesome. Colossus is my favorite X-Men, though. Yeah? I don't know if I've said it on the record. Wow, I did not know that. He is. Yeah, I mean... He's like 1A, you know, and they go through 1G probably, but he's my favorite. Yeah. Um, and uh, I I get really mad. As a kid, I would get really mad because I felt like um, Wolverine would pick on him. The issue where Wolverine takes him out drinking. Yeah. What a great issue, though. And Juggernaut shows up. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great issue, but uh, I was really resentful of the way Wolverine was treating him and really embarrassed for the way that Colossus was acting. So there's that. But uh, getting back to this, so Colossus transforms into metal mid-punch, which is awesome. Yes. And just clocks Weapon Alpha, who we now know as Guardian of Alpha Flight, for those who don't know. And he's in his little Guardian red and white maple leaf armor. Which looks totally sweet. I always love this costume. Always. It's a pretty sweet costume. And then Storm steps in and and zaps this log that that Weapon Alpha wants to hit Colossus with. And Weapon Alpha says, Alright, I'm going to up the ante a little bit. And he tries to zap Storm. Colossus steps in the way. And the, the blast hits Colossus and ricochets and hits Moira right in the temple. And that's scary, but I just want to point out the sound effect drawn into the blast. Yeah. That's awesome. That's pretty badass. I love that. Love that. Uh, so, your boy Banshee. Yeah. What a badass. I love that when he gets really angry... He really lets loose with his power. Yeah. And they draw him really creepy. Yeah, they stopped doing that, which is kind of a bummer. It is a bummer. But um, they stopped doing it because he's dead in their defense. Oh. <laughs> you had to remind me. <laughs> so, so he unleashes as hard as he can, uh, which, as we've said before, is not a good look for him. And uh, Weapon Alpha says, Oh, he would have liquefied me if he had hit me with that. I better get out of here. And he just disapparates into thin air with a pop. And he's gone. And everyone kind of looks at Wolverine like, What just happened? And he's like, I'm sorry I got you involved in this, people. And everybody's like, Dang, there's more to Wolverine than we thought. Right? And he said, From here on out, things are only going to get worse. 
And I was like, oh man, I can't wait till the next issue. What's Wolverine gonna do? <laughs> well, you're not gonna find out. Before we skip ahead, this reminded me when I reread this again. I've s- saw this several times in the letters columns. There's a few times uh, where the writer of the letter column mentions himself as an armadillo. Was that right? Or an aardvark or something? Some, some weird animal like that. And I thought that was weird. But <laughs> a couple times they keep, they use the word for schlugener as something bad. So uh, true X-Men fans will be familiar with the word for schlugener. And we'll use it in tweets to Sean and I in the future. And that's how we'll know you're listening to this show. Fair enough. If you refer to this show as that for Schlugener podcast, we'll know you're in. You're in our club. You're cool like us. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to have beer. All right. So uh, I forgot I wanted to keep track of the creative teams for each issue. And the letters and colorers uh, are not static. They change a lot, and I'm not going to, sorry, I'm not going to spend time on them. But Archie Goodwin is editing these issues through 111. And you've got, for 109, you had uh, Claremont writing. Claremont writes all of these. And then you had um, John Byrne penciling and... Terry Austin on inks. Right. And it looks like that's going to be the plan forever until you get two issues into the run and it's another fill-in issue. And it turns out that unlike issue 106, which was a file issue that was like a break glass in case of emergency issue, this was a planned fill-in back when Cochran was still drawing the book. They planned to have issue 110 actually be issue 109. And this was uh, penciled by Tony DeZugana. DeZuniga. That's really hard to say. <laughs> and it was just a fill-in issue to give Cockrum a breather because he can't couldn't get a book out once every two months, I guess. Oh, snap. And, and you still claimed he was the best. <laughs> so they had a fill-in issue on 106. They didn't want to put another one just a few issues later at 109, so they pushed it back one issue. So that leads into the game, the X sanction. Now across I, the top, I have a question. Yes, is this Tony Dzuguna fill an issue? Is this the first time that the X Men play baseball? It is the first time that the all new, all different X Men play baseball, and I couldn't tell you about the original crew, but there sure weren't enough of them to play baseball. That's true. Uh, <laughs> so Xavier's out there wheeling down the yeah. first base. <laughs> Just throw four balls to him, Scott. Take pity. <laughs> the old man's got nothing else to live for. His action figure has wobbly legs. <laughs> so, but yeah, man, baseball issue. Yeah. This opens with the baseball game, and it's huge. But I wanted to point out too, across the top, that the X sanction title across the top totally reminded me of that. The banner for X Factor when the original X Factor run started. That's all. Take it away. Baseball. There's not much going on in this issue. No. I mean, it is a full on fill in issue. Yeah. 
I think the idea is to put something out. Yeah, no. I mean, Logan's brooding about the fact that Scott is with Gene. But she does show him attention. She, she shows does. that uh, she knows Wolverine exists. Moira goes to answer the door because supposedly there's a repairman coming to the mansion. And uh, when she opens up the door, she gets shocked because the uh, shadowy figure is, you know, you're led to believe that he's slightly disfigured. Whatever that means, I think he's just uh, crazy looking. I don't know. The, the the character actually looks like Colossus to me. I remember when I picked yeah. up the cover, like I was like, Colossus is here, but he's also on this... TV screen. What the hell's going on? Yeah. Another... And the whole time that I'm reading this, I'm like, what the hell happened to Guardian? (laughs) (laughs) Right. 12-year-old Sean did not understand editorial fill-ins. Right. Even though it was explained in the letters column, 12-year-olds also do not read the letter column. So, uh, Moira Um, is quickly becoming the weak link in the chain at the X-Mansion. Yeah, somebody ship her back to Muir Island. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but she's, of course, going to take Banshee with her. Of course, because the Irish guy belongs in Scotland. Nice one. The shadowy guy is revealed as Warhawk. And next he takes out the Professor and Jean with his little gun. Yep. They each get a foot. <laughs> and they're lying prone on the ground. Traps the rest of the X-Men in the danger room. And turns it to 11. So they're forced under uh, high stress to try to work as a team. Get to see Nightcrawler teleport him and Wolverine. Which is the biggest dual teleport he's ever tried. Yeah. Because of Wolverine's uh, added mass. He teleported he and Lalandra. Yep. And he comments that that almost killed him. So he's scared that what will happen when he tries it with Wolverine. But he still does it. You know why? Best X-Men ever. He's the bravest X-Men ever, that's for sure. Bravest of the brave. So, I mean, they they fight all the little contraptions in the danger room. It's a danger room issue. If you like the danger room, pick up 110. Yeah. This is all danger room. Literally. The whole thing is the danger room. But they do manage to get out. Nightcrawler punches Warhawk in the face, revealing that he really is like uh, Colossus. His face, especially, is hard as steel. (laughs) But uh, Colossus, of course, has no problems punching steel, so he punches him out. And a pair of handcuffs is all it takes to walk him away, as the police find out. It's awesome. But uh, Warhawk was sent here by somebody, and they do not reveal in the issue who he was sent here by. So it's possible, Sean, that there is a conspiracy unfolding. That is true. Unbeknownst to the X-Men. That's issue 110. That is. Enough said. That leads us to issue 111, which is one of Sean's favorites. Issue 111 was drawn, again, by Byrne and Austin, uh, with a Cockrum cover, just like the last one. And as a kid, the cover confused me. I was a dumb kid, I guess, because I never realized that it was Banshee on the cover. I always, like, I always glossed over this issue when I was younger. That's Banshee on the cover. Because I, I always thought this was Arcade so on the cover I. before so I read I. it. And so part of my problem was that I didn't want to read it because I was like, ah. Arcade's not that great. Yeah. I'm not going to drop 70 bucks on a back issue. Exactly. Yeah. Me too. And then when I was rereading it for this, I was like, whoa, not bad. I think I also had this, for a time period, I had this confused fearing that it would be 
Like the uh, Kitty Pride fairy tale issue. Yeah. You know? Right, which you're clearly not a fan of. Because I, you hate Cockrum. <laughs> I like that issue more now as an adult than I did as a kid. Mm-hmm. But I was like, why do I want to... What? No, smash some fucking Sentinels. <laughs> so the first page of this issue... Um, you're just kind of dropped in the middle of the story, which is not something Sean's a fan of always, but this seemed to work out for him. The first page is great. You see Beast in his typical disguise attire with the big fedora and the the trench coat with the collar pulled up. I call it the Raphael. Okay. I gotcha. I gotcha. Doesn't work for an X-Pod, but okay. Somebody out there is going to internet high five. High five! (laughs) So... Down in the if you, if you're actually looking at this page, and you uh, look down at the bottom, the little boy who's pointing is a young Jerry McDade. Yeah, yeah, I Red see hair, that freckled. That's right, he's a little ginger boy. I you know I was looking at this page and wondering how many of these people in the page are people that burn new. It looks like one of those pages where he's drawing likenesses. Yeah, and somebody out there might know. If you know, let us know. Cite us something that, that tells us who these people are, because I care and Sean doesn't. But dead center in the middle of the page, you see the beast and awesome job of lettering on this page. Uh, yeah, a oversized word balloon <laughs> with him saying, "I, I don't believe this. I don't believe this at all." Good job, letterer. Who is our old pal Tom Orzechowski? I don't remember how to say it anymore. I found out. Now I already forgot. Or is it Chowski? That's not what it is. No? Nope. But um, he will eventually become the regular letterer on the book. And he was the letterer during the Mutant Massacre issues. Which which is when we mentioned it before, now that I'm thinking of it. Uh, But Precious would know how to pronounce it. He would. He knows everything. Because he's a beautiful person. Uh, so he immediately, I, th- I want to say this is the first one that he lettered, and he immediately makes an impact on the first page. You can see why he's the best. Enough said about that. Sean, yep. take it away. You do the talking. Oh, I mean, the, you know, it's, I mean, it's just kind of a fun issue as Beast starts to figure out that these actually are obviously, see, the interesting thing is, Beast hasn't met the current team of X-Men yet. So he believes that these are them, but he's not 100% Sure. So, with his uh, fedora and his um, Phil Urich esque coat, he must start doing <laughs> some investigating to find out if they are, in fact, his future X Men friends. These events need reporting. Exactly. He should have brought Ben Grimm along with him. They he would should have, been have quite a pair. Yeah, would have been awesome. Sean, I should mention here in issue one eleven of the X Men. Uh, Alex has been kidnapped, as I did mention, but I did not mention that when he was kidnapped in Marvel Team Up number 70, he was kidnapped by the living monolith. What? Damn straight. Who's trying to pull the old lock him up and steal his cosmic powers shit. Damn, again? again? This has sounded tired because we just heard this story earlier on this episode. I gotta write these issues down. And, uh, you get, a. Uh, Shot a storm in her little uh, bikini, which I'm sure Jerry's a fan of. 
<laughs> Not just me. Somebody shouts out from the crowd. Now that is what I call a total woman. It's true. This guy knows women. She is a total. That woman. was actually the little boy from the first page that looks like a young Jerry McCabe. <laughs> oh shit! I'm, my bad. It was me. It was me. <laughs> Even back then, Jerry knew what he wanted. I do. So I should mention, the reason Beast is here is that he he got a call from Lorna over a mirror island where they went in the previous issue, that um, or 109, I guess, that Alex has been kidnapped. And those events play out over in the Avengers... And in a Marvel team-up issue, oh. written by Chris Claremont, drawn by John Byrne. Shit, I gotta track that down. Yeah, I think it's number 70. Yep, Marvel team-up number 70. You better send that information to and me. I'm gonna go eBay shopping tomorrow. Check this out. Inked by Tony DeZuniga. How about that for oh, a damn. weird... It's awesome. Tie in. So I, you see this with Claremont, though, where he works with the same guys wherever he goes. He's always bringing the same guys back. He's got his favorites. And I guess Kazuma falls in that in that camp. Sean, go ahead. Well, I mean, like I said, there wasn't too much that I wanted to talk about the issue. Just a couple really good burnished uh, images. Um, you know, you see... Uh, um, I can't think of the character's name, but Jean pulls off her very best. Who is the girl in the jerk... When Steve Martin goes to the circus. Oh, yeah. Jean pulls that look off pretty well. She's got the fishnet. She's smoking. Oh, she's smoking all right. Yeah. I think Wolverine would probably love this version of Jean. Yeah, he probably would. And uh, he does run into her, doesn't he? Oh, and Cyclops is, is wearing a t-shirt that actually says Slim on it. Yeah. Which I love. and And he is... Not All slim. slim. But he's not no. very slim in that picture. He's no. looking pretty buff. Yeah, Byrne draws a really beefy Cyclops. At least in this attire. Yeah. And in his costume, it's not so apparent. Yeah, I think Byrne falls a little bit into the trap of drawing everybody really muscular. Yeah. His, his uh, Nightcrawler's maybe a little more slight. I think definitely more slight than, than when Cockrum drew him. Like, Cockrum drew Nightcrawler... And characterize him kind of as a strong guy. Yeah. Still hu- not superhuman strength, but like a really strong dude. And I think we start to see him slenderizing now that, that Claremont's... Yeah. Or, uh, I'm sorry, that Byrne is drawing him. I think the thing that draws me to this issue is growing up in the time period that I did with the X-Men, like right around the time period that the Legacy Virus dropped... Um, Beast kind of got written into this corner of always constantly being in the lab, stressing about curing that. Right. And that led years. And then it changed right into the, I've got to figure out why, how we can fix what the Scarlet Witch did to mutants and, you uh-huh. know, the whole endangered species arc and everything like that. So a lot right. of the... He becomes Reed Richards of the, of the mutants. And just kind of... And then with Morrison, Morrison made him mopey and, you know, he was going through the secondary mutation, which I hate. Uh-huh. And... I don't think anybody likes it. Does anybody like it? I mean, some no, people might they, like the way it looks, but... I like the way he looks now with the new Stuart Eminem. Yeah. Revised version, because it's better, but I still, this is the classic beast for me that I would like to see all the time. Yeah. But growing up here in so much Nobody draws him like Byrne. No. I think Byrne draws the best beast. Well, 
So I think the reason why I like this issue so much is not having that much of an affection for Beast because of him always kind of just being science guy off in the corner. Mm-hmm. I liked... You always hear such great things about like his friendship with Wonder, Wonder Man, Man. Uh-huh. and his relationship in the Avengers and not reading the Avengers and being completely an X-Men kid when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Not because I didn't want to read the Avengers, but just... You know, I'm on an allowance because I'm a little kid and I was right. into the X-Men. It was nice to get spotlight issues where it was like, oh, he is an awesome character and he's not just this one note. I'm in the, I mean, he was, he was funny and clever in those appearances that he was in, but it was always kind yeah. of like, I never saw him do the acrobatics and stuff like that. So uh-huh. I really dug that in this well, issue. This is, this is my beast. Yeah. As, as a little kid, when I was reading my older brother's comics, it was those burn avengers issues and i mean he was my favorite character he and wonder man probably i mean i really liked all of them like i loved vision i guess honestly vision was my favorite yeah but um all those guys were awesome but uh yeah that beast really brought something interesting to the table you know as as a hero goes he's probably the suckiest one he doesn't really measure up to the rest of the avengers and probably doesn't really measure up to the X-Men either, other than Wolverine. You know, but he's still awesome. Yeah. The only thing is I don't know if he's in my top ten. He's the one guy I struggle with. Yeah, we're going to have to get to that one of these days. We've talked about it. I know, it's a really... The thing is, is it's like, it's fluid. It changes with every... Yeah. You know, in this issue, I love Beast, and you know... Mm-hmm. And it's like, I love Banshee, but I love Banshee because... I have, like, a fascination with him from when I was a kid, and he had a great action figure when I was little that had, like, a whistle Uh into it so you could blow into it. It would make the screech sound and drive my mom crazy. Um, So it's like my affection for certain characters isn't solely based on their appearances in comics, because really Banshee's time on the team isn't that much. Right. But my name's Sean, his name is Sean, I'm Irish, he's Irish. Yeah. He had a cool costume. Although I like the blue and gold costume that he wore later in the late 200s when him and Forge were like the only X-Men left. Uh Um, I really like that costume because I think one of the first... It's so weird to me that that's that like you, that's Banshee to you. Yeah. Banshee to me was cool because he was the mysterious guy that only showed up once every 50 issues because he was retired. You know, and and I wanted to know more about him. He's the Danny Glover of the (laughs) X-Men. It's like Xavier... Too old for this shit. <laughs> That's right. I'm going. I'm going back to your island for your leftovers. <laughs> Cut that out. <laughs> oh man. Let me know when you're done with Jean Grey. I'm gonna get on that now. No. <laughs> oh. Xavier was a nice school teacher who was, was dead from the waist down. <laughs> That's right. So eventually Beast, uh, getting back to this issue, eventually Beast figures out who's behind all this kidnapped X-Men who are now circus freaks. Yeah. Which is the point of what's going on in this issue. I don't know. Did we ever say exactly? They've all become circus freaks. Yeah. And it's Mesmero. And who, it is. as you learned earlier in this episode with Mr. Greg Turner, was last seen in the X-Men working with... Magneto, or who we thought was Magneto, but was actually a robot! So fucking cool. 
So cool. Only in comics, man. That is, I love, and this is part of the reason why I love this issue, is there's two images that stick out in my mind. Uh-huh. And there is Mesmero's sexy pose. Right. Which for me is on issue, or on page 390. And for you, right. that in the issue, that is... Page 16. Page 16. I just think that, like, it's just a cool costume. And I think doing the reread with you has been fun because a lot of the current... X-Men stuff is X-Men fighting X-Men or X-Men fighting um, the Purifiers, you know, um, other humans, Avengers. And and it's cool just to go back to this and see, like, that's a fucking villain. Yeah. Like, that is a dude in a purple and green... Secondary color. <laughs> super villain suit. And it's awesome looking and it's cool. And when I was a kid, I wanted a toy of it. Like, everything about it just screams cool to me. Yeah, well, it, the reason it looks cool is because Byrne has adapted a classic uh, John Buscema pose here. This is this is definitely Buscema lifted. The whole uh, slouched villain in repose. Yeah. He, he loved that. Mephisto and Silver Surfer and let's see somebody in the Avengers I'm trying to remember who it was Wolverine breaks free he overcomes his hypnotism tries to snap Gene out of it by pulling the old Hank Pym pulls the old Hank Pym but not before he pulls it on Cyclops which I'm sure he (laughs) relishes and he, he slaps his lady around and she wakes up slaps him back Oh, yeah, she man, she does. She screams at him, don't you hit me, little man, in her phoenix voice. Don't you ever hit me like that again. When she calls him little man, I immediately think of Ray and Pete. (laughs) (laughs) So she doesn't just slap him, she zrakows him. Yes. And uh, the Beast nearly gets the best of Mesmero, but is felled by an unknown assailant. Yeah. Mesmero catches the unknown assailant and says, You! But it can't be. The X-Men converge. Oh, that is a... (laughs) Wait, not that. We're not there yet. That, right there, is a great panel of the... You see Nightcrawler taking down those guys with the guns. Yeah, see, I just take this panel for granted, but this has never been done. Guys, page... What is it? 20, 27 for me. Page 27 of issue 11. As far as I know, this is the first time that this has been done. What is being done? Nightcrawler is taking down multiple assailants by teleporting, but Burn drew. It's one long panel, but you see like one hand smacking a dude in the back of the head. Then there's another one. And it just kind of, you see Nightcrawler traveling in teleportation, taking out three guys. It's Across awesome. the page. Yeah, it's it's awesome. And you it's see, something you see now, an arm coming out of the teleportation out of the bamp. And a guy like me completely takes that for granted. But you are smarter than me and you yeah. picked up on still having seen this now for a million years, you still appreciate that. Yeah. Rightfully so. But not as awesome as Cyclops producing a narrow beam and shooting it down the barrel of someone's pistol, shattering it. That is pretty sweet. Who is the badass now, Nightcrawler? Still Nightcrawler. Still Nightcrawler. <laughs> so they make it into the uh, the circus wagon that Mesmero is in, 
And they talk all snarky to him. They say, that's what's up now, Mesmero. But Mesmero just falls over. And Cyclops thinks to himself, Lord, no, we're nowhere near ready. Ready for what, Sean? Magneto. In a beautiful splash page with a bunch of Kirby crackle in the background. And it's the first time that Byrne's ever drawn. I mean, you see him in shadow, but this is the first full-on John Byrne drawn Magneto image. And it is beautiful. It's got the, um, if you haven't read this far back, but maybe have seen the movies, um, at the very end of X-Men First Class, Fastbender shows up in the full-on outfit. And I got super excited, even though it looks completely ridiculous on film. <laughs> it was still super cool to see the helmet with the little horns on the front. Uh-huh. It's just badass looking. That hood ornament? Yeah. Yeah, and you know, you, you called it Kirby Crackle pissed. on this page? Is that right? I, I think it's a kind of Kirby Crackle, but it looks different. And, I mean, I'm sure somebody must have done this technique before. It's like uh, quick brushes instead of dots. And uh, I I don't know what this technique is named. Oh, okay. But it's... I guess technically it could be Kirby Crackle, but I don't know. No, you're probably right. It looks different. I I would love to know what it is called. Because it looks sweet. Yeah. Uh, And you're right. It's a great page. You're absolutely right. And this is the first time they've seen him since early on in 104... And despite having faced him once and getting their asses kicked, they're still clearly not ready for him in Cyclops' eyes. That's the truth. The next issue, they're in this uh, in this wagon with in very tight quarters with Magneto, a bad place to be, as Claremont, Byrne, and Austin work on this again. This time, though, for one issue, we see Jim Shooter, a very young Jim Shooter, as the editor of this book. And not just the editor, as we'll see very soon. So, Cyclops says, I want no part of this fight. Everybody make a run for it. Nightcrawler, teleport outside and scout ahead. So Nightcrawler disappears, and you hear him from outside yell, Ach, nein! (laughs) And quickly, uh, Colossus rips open the door to see what's wrong, and they are miles in the air flying across the earth under the power of Magneto. Wolverine doesn't like that much so he goes to cut his throat out and is quickly reprimanded by Cyclops. Yeah. How are we supposed to get down, you moron? (laughs) Wolverine doesn't always think. Yeah. Especially early on. Yeah, they would have been dead meat. I just love the fact that like Magneto is floating them around in a giant circus wagon. (laughs) It's awesome. A wooden circus wagon, but I won't harp on that too much. It's got nails and screws in it and maybe some metal wheels. Yeah, well, the X-Men are about to get nailed and screwed (laughs) themselves. Uh, But before they are, Cyclops wants to know, why why would Magneto zap Mesmero when they were working so closely together before when Cyclops last saw them together? And Magneto's all, you fool. Well, no, he calls him my dear Cyclops. But he says, I don't know this man at all. That was a robot who worked with him previously. Because he would know that. 
Like we discussed earlier in this episode in X-Men issue number 58, drawn by the wonderful Neil Adams. High five! Now, we get to see a very special guest appearance at the bottom of this page, which is page 7, if you're reading along at home. Uh, You see a jet fighter following the wagon (laughs) through the air, and it is piloted by two gentlemen, we assume, who are helmeted in masks, so you can't see their faces, but their helmets are labeled Tirador and Perez. And it may occur to you that the cover of this issue was drawn by a Mr. George Perez. Perhaps you've heard of him? And, for our Spanish-speaking friends, I know there are several of you out there. Tirador is Spanish for shooter. And likely references Jim Shooter, the editor of this book. So there's a little trivia for you, people. What else, Sean? What else happens? Uh, Magneto tosses Mesmero out the back of the wagon. He's just flying around like a complete asshole. <laughs> Poor Mesmero. He does carefully float him down, though, right? Yeah, but still, it's kind of a dick move, if you ask me. They could have been friends. And then, in another one of my favorite things that I sorely miss in comics nowadays, the wagon floats down to Magneto's fucking lava base. Hell yeah. Lava base! Base in the middle of a volcano. And they do a cutaway. Double page spread across the bottom of the base. And it is ginormous. And as he mentions... It's just one of several of these that he has across the globe. Magneto is a pimp, you guys. He's not just angry. He's not just villainous. He's a technical wizard. And right as they're about to like land in the wagon, he just explodes the whole thing, making all the X-Men fall. I mean, not He far. carefully brings them 30 miles down, <laughs> 10 feet off the air, and then just explodes it and drops them. And the X-Men start fighting him, but of course they get quickly manhandled because two of the guys are entirely made of metal. Yeah. No, these. This is not a good matchup. No. And poor Beast gets zapped. Yeah. And in a manner that we will see again during the Dark Phoenix saga. And it's one of the the images that's burned in my brain, that, that fight on the, the blue area of the moon when he fights um, the giant green robot. With the little robot. Warstar? Up, yeah, Warstar. And he he tries to get the what little guy. toys? <laughs> <laughs> he tries to get the little one, whatever his name is, and he gets sapped for it. Same effect. All his fur stands on end. So they fight, they fight, they fight. They run at him one at a time again, like idiots again. Yeah. Uh, but fortunately, Jean's got some experience under her belt now. And she says, what up to Magneto? He seems to be getting the best of her, but that gives Wolverine enough time to sneak up behind him. And he shacks him. Yeah. He sticks the adamantium claws right in his face and Wolverine's sweating in this great page. And then he pulls a my older brother and makes him punch himself in the face once the claws are done. <laughs> Why are you hitting yourself, Sean? Why are you hitting yourself? <laughs> Sound effect. So many great sound effects when Burns drawing stuff. The sound effect is brow! <laughs> because he gets hit in his brow, I assume. Yeah. So now that Wolverine is down, the X-Men are now his prisoners, and he introduces Nanny. 
Mm-hmm. In all respects, you'll find her to be the perfect mother. So the X-Men are all strapped into these chairs that look a lot like the wheelchair you'll see Professor X in in the future. Except these ones have the hands locked down. Yeah. An eye for an eye, X-Men. He's still bitter that he was shrunk to to baby form. In Defenders number 16. Defenders number 16. Yeah, I'll look that up and see up and buy it. And he says, an eye for an eye, you will not die, but you will soon wish you had. You will suffer as I suffered, to be aware of who and what you are, to each possess your powers in their fullest measure, yet to be as unable to use them as a six-month-old child, to be helpless. If there is a hell, X-Men, surely it cannot be more terrible than this. And thus ends the issue. That is freaking sweet. This will be the last issue we'll cover in this segment. X-Men number 113, now on sale monthly. It's about time. It's taken, what do you think, two years to this point of bi-monthly publishing? People are finally starting to realize this is the best comic out there and they want more. Now that Burns on it, I'm sure that was enough to push them over the edge. So... While the X-Men are locked up in issue 113 by Claremont Byrne, who now gets a co-plotter credit, which is big doings back in these times. A lot of artists have been fighting that battle for a long time. Um, we see a Byrne cover for the first time. And it's a sweet cover. After the Perez and Layton inked cover last time, we see... A burn, a great burn cover here. And this is also inked by Bob Layton, who you will probably know as the artist and writer? I can't remember of Iron Man 129, Demon in yes. a Bottle. This is the first issue edited by Roger Stern and should probably take his fair credit for everything that happens here. Yeah. It is also the first issue released with Jim Shooter as editor-in-chief, who should take his fair share of the credit and blame for the things that are to come. As we get to the Dark Phoenix saga, we'll be mentioning the name Jim Shooter quite a bit. So, Magneto now is... He's attacking the Royal Australian Aerospace Research Facility. Like a boss. Yeah. Now that the X-Men are out of his way, and I assume everybody else is occupied with other things, I remember reading something about Fantastic Four were tied up with something. Yeah. The Avengers were off-planet. or I, I can't remember. But folks, they're not here. And the X-Men are trapped by the nanny robot, strapped to their chairs. And Magneto's tearing it up in the meantime. Yeah, I really dig this panel, too. I, I think it's cool. Like the old effect of like the TV screen. Oh yeah. Like wartime footage of like Magneto, you know. Right. I don't know. Anytime I see this, like when I read The Watchmen, which you're not a fan of. I, uh, <laughs> I didn't read it though. I just, um, or anything like this. Whenever I see TV stuff or a reporter, I immediately start losing interest. Immediately. Really? I, I can't help it. I just want to be done with that section. There's something about that that does not click with me, and I haven't been able to identify why. 
But this is just like one page. Yeah. So it's cool. We see uh, Nanny force feeding uh, Wolverine, and she's babying all the X Men. It's really she's cute. Grooming beast. Grooming beast with two brushes. She really does seem to have genuine affection for them. Like she's programmed to yeah. treat them like her babies. And it's it's cool. Like she she looks kind of creepy and evil, but I don't really think there's anything evil about her at all. No, she's just a sweet little robot in a French maid dress. Uh oh, could this be a comic book crush? Sex robot. <laughs> and the oh. next page is awesome because it is a nine panel squared out page. Nine panel grid, straight out of the Watchmen. Yeah, but this is the first time this uh, nine-panel grid. This is the first time that we see Storm use her lock-picking skills from her headdress. Yeah. So many cool firsts yeah. in these issues. So she flips the, the headdress off of her head right into her lap skillfully and uses her dexterous tongue to remove one of the lockpicks. No wonder you don't have your original issue out of this, because I'm sure this page is just I can't open this apart. page anymore. It's stuck together. <laughs> I'm just kidding, guys. And while she's trying to uh, undo the locks with her tongue, she's uh, flashing back to when she was younger and uh, learning how to become a pickpocket and a thief while she was in Cairo. After her parents were killed. They show a cool panel of her trying to crack a safe with just her feet. Yep. And then Nanny, because she drops the lockpick, and Nanny comes in and puts her headdress on, and Storm starts to cry. Oh, man. What a bummer. That panel. Like, it... So, the Magneto's doing something to them to make them incapable of speech, and it makes movement really difficult. So she's been at this for, I don't know how long, but she's pouring sweat by the time the nanny robot comes in and puts it back on her. So she's been at this forever. And she's thinking, I don't think I could do this again if I had to. And nanny comes in, catches her, puts the headdress back on, and she weeps. What does it say? For only the third time since she was a child, Aurora cries. That's awesome. So... So Magneto returns to his lair, finds the lights all off, and Nanny turning in a circle, just driving over and over in a circle. And uh, he gets jacowed yep. from every direction. The X-Men lay into him. Everybody gets a piece. Beast fastball specials Nightcrawler no, he by didn't the just, tail. He did, yeah, he whips him around. It's pretty awesome. Nightcrawler teleports, takes his helmet off, and Colossus crumbs him right in the face. <laughs> he does, but Magneto takes it like a champ. What what is up with Magneto? Like maybe in the maybe in the split second before he connected, Magneto was able to slow it down a little bit. Oh yeah, maybe he's just all man. Yeah, maybe it's possible. But it's the, like, bitch, I survived the Holocaust. <laughs> Punch away. <laughs> uh, it definitely looks like the X-Men are starting to get the better of him, though. So he does what and any smart villain will do. do, and he trashes his base, grabs his helmet, flies off, 
leaving them in this giant sub-volcanic melting yeah. base. Beast grabs on Jean, kind of separating her from her, himself and her from the rest of the X-Men. Magneto takes off. On that page, uh, this would be page 29 for you? Yes, 27. As they get separated, Scott yells, Hank, Jean! What does that panel remind you of? Blue area of the moon, buddy. Yeah. Blue area of the moon. Very reminiscent of her getting laser. In the 90s cartoon, when all Scott did was yell, Jean! <laughs> He's worried. He's a worrier. He was like Michael and Lost every time he'd scream, Walt. That's all Psychos <laughs> did in the cartoon. <laughs> Poor Michael. Poor Michael. Michael got robbed. Walt got robbed. It's not his fault he got old. So Gene and Beast escape, but they escape to the wintry, wintry Antarctic, or the Andes, or somewhere. Or Detroit somewhere today. Some, it could have been Detroit today, for sure. And Hank picks her up, tells her it's going to be okay, starts to carry her, but runs out of strength, collapses on top of her unconscious form, and it says, to be continued... And that's where we will leave this segment, folks. So, any parting words, Sean? What do you think of this segment of the run? Where does this rate compared to everything else we've read? Compared to everything, this is where, like, I mean, I like the Cockrum stuff, but the Burn stuff is where I feel like the team finally starts to come together because I feel like Claremont had a good relationship, um, like, as far as working-wise. I don't know about behind the scenes. But, I mean, they did some good work, but I feel like Burn and... Burn and Claremont are the Lennon and McCartney of the X-Men. Hmm. Like, might not always get along, but I think the stuff that they did will always go down as classic. Yeah. And I don't think that it... it. Listen, I have stuff that means more to me personally because of my own attachment to it, but I don't think that the X-Men ever get better than this. I think the team's perfect. I think... For all today's talk about, like, making sure that... Like, the the, the argument about um, female characters being represented in comic books today always kind of... I understand it, but at the same time, there's a part of me that looks back at this and goes, Storm and Phoenix are probably more powerful than the... I mean, Phoenix alone is more powerful than the rest of the X-Men. Yeah. And then you add in Storm, who really, I mean... Prior to... Gene getting the Phoenix power, several of them comment on Storm being the most powerful yeah. X-Men. And I mean, seriously, like I think the Storm is probably one of the most powerful X-Men, and then when Gene has the Phoenix powers, so it's like I, you know, reading the X-Men books, it was like there were always really powerful women in the books, so I honestly think that the team is at its best, like it's most um, fearsome if you were a villain. Because I think every facet of the team is covered in this really well. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, I think people have hang-ups about the Claremont Burns stuff. You know, it, clearly it's revered by a lot of people. But there are always those snarky people that talk about how wordy you know, Claremont is. And just stop and appreciate these stories for what they are appreciate the firsts appreciate that everything that comes after it for better or for worse is built upon what's happening in these issues and that 
almost every page you're seeing something for the first time. And uh, that they're really special and they should be cherished. Agreed. That's all I have to say about that. I've done enough talking. So, I think the next episode we've got coming will be probably the second half of our conversation with Greg Turner. And you will hear the next bit of Claremont Burns storytelling be at the Savage Land. Oh, one of my favorite places ever. So until then... Goodbye. And that was when I first, because I never realized it was him, when I'd go back and, like, read the stuff that you grew up with. Because uh-huh. it wasn't that, like, he was always the black guy to me. Like, that's how I knew him, was he was, like, everyone had fucking square faces. Drawn out of shapes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Like, we, like a, like, a more fleshy Kirby. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, Kirby, like, everything's crazy. Like, that's what... Square fingertips. and Yeah, that's what Romita Jr. reminded me of in the first couple, like... Because I want to say that I picked up Uncanny, like, right around the time that Bishop started. Mm-hmm. So it would have been, like, after the image dudes left. That was it? I feel like it was, like, I came out of the book when, like... I don't even know how you say it. 
Because Protasio was doing it. Okay. Yeah, so he, he's one of the guys that left for Image. Right, he left, and, and they scrambled, and it was Brandon Peterson that took over Uncanny for Execution. Because they, right. the Image guys bailed right before Executioner's song, basically leaving those guys in the lurch with, like, holy fuck, we have to put together <laughs> this whole event. Yeah. Which is cool to look at that, because it's like, that's actually one of my favorite events, and mm-hmm. I think it's one of the events that, it's clunky because it's like super strifes like 100% Bond villain like I'm gonna fucking go on for 20 minutes about (laughs) my evil plot Uh and there's some weirdness with like there's this one scene where he's like force feeding Jean Grey baby food (laughs) (laughs) yeah but so I think that that was Brandon Peterson, if I'm remembering correctly, and then Ramita Jr. took over, and I was like, "Why does everyone look like they were like they were like Legos?" <laughs> yeah, the kids are proportioned like Legos for sure. Oh, yeah, big heads. I would like to see Ramita Jr. on Power Pack. Oh my god, you ruined! <laughs> that was one of the things like I really liked his most recent Captain America run with Rick Remender. Uh-huh. But you like. You did one of those, like, I'm in a relationship with someone, and you point out their flaw, and then I can't unsee it, because you tweeted something, or you told me at the shop, you were like, look at the kid's head. It's, like a, the, it's, the, it's a big oh head. Oh my god, they're all big heads. Yeah. Anyways, I don't want to go on and on about John Romita Jr., but... Well, I mean, it's, it is a, a topic for, uh, for now. It is a current event that he has left Marvel. And, I mean, I had heard rumblings about this a while ago, and I think I knew it was coming, but, um, like, until it actually happens, you don't really believe it. And he's a guy that's, to me, is synonymous with Marvel in the way that like Kirby was even though Kirby went to DC for a stretch and did what some consider his best work while he was there with Commandy I mean people love Commandy and uh you know New Gods or whatever yeah because okay so you being more of the comic book historian than I am has he ever worked for DC Romita Jr. yeah i I mean, it's possible that he's done some work for them, but I, I don't know any. Okay. I could go on the internet and, and find out, I guess. But That's I, not our style, man. It's not our style. I mean, anybody could do that. Research. I could go back and edit it into the episode that I had the answer, but I'm not going to. Since we don't really read DC, how would we know that? Exactly. I mean, I did have my time where I was reading a lot of DC titles regularly, but... Um, I can tell you during that time period in the early 2000s, there, he didn't do any that I know of. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, knock yourself out. That's that's my opinion on it. I don't want to fault the guy for leaving. It'd be a shame to go through your whole career and never draw Batman or Superman. You know, as one of the greats. Yeah, I, I could see the desire to do that when you've done everything there is to do in Marvel. But I, I made this analogy before. It would be like uh, 49ers fans when Jerry Rice went to the Oakland Raiders or when um, Joe Montana went 
to the Chiefs, you know, at the end of their career. Like, that would suck yeah. to see that happen. And this is going to suck for me. And I got a lot of negative response when I said that on Twitter. But, Dude, I can, you know. I can go good morning on Twitter and people are going to be like, hey, fuck you. Yeah. Well, basically, it just, you know, that's fine that there are DC fans that are excited he's coming and that there are people that read DC comics and like them. I don't happen to read DC comics. And so I probably won't be seeing any of his work. And that's too bad for that respect. But it's more than just that. Like, he, in a way, is a big piece of Marvel Comics. And plus, everything he's done will will always be there. But Plus, he's a big piece of your Marvel comic history. Yeah. So I understand that. Cause I mean, like when I see... the guy drew the first X-Men comic I ever bought. Yeah. Over 30 years ago. I understand. And I've been reading his comics for 30 years. That's why every time I see somebody shit on Lobdell online, I'm just like... Right. I get it. Yeah, no, yeah. But it's like one of those things where, like, there's certain stuff that everyone has, like, rose-colored glasses for. Yeah. Like... I mean, I've I've taken shots over Mita before. He's, He's done some stuff that's really disappointed me. And I said before we started recording, I might as well say it on the record, that I, I'm i disappointed with Marvel for letting him go because I, I think they should have done everything. They could. And maybe they did do everything they could, but they should have done a little bit more to try to keep him around because the guy is like a piece of living history. But I'm a little disappointed with him because I don't think the work that he put out in the last few years was everything it could have been because of his creator-owned book that he was putting most of his energy into. And I'm sure he was con- contractually obligated to put out other work for hire through Marvel. And I don't think that that stuff always looked that great, because he was crunched for time. Yeah. And so now, now that Kick-Ass is all done and is wrapping up, uh, he's going to leave. And he's going to concentrate on one title, and it's going to be the best looking book he's probably put out in forever because he's focusing on it and it does bum me out a little revelation I had today it bums me out that it, that's going to happen over at DC and not at Marvel I've said enough there you go do you have anything else you want to say about it no I'm in cool 